Hello and welcome to Arrest on the Mix. My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Innovation Podcast and welcome back to the 100th episode. It's a bit of a blockbuster so we've gone two parts and here you are on the second part. If you haven't already listened to part one I suggest you go back and hear Olivia Kugel's awesome journey and his arc from childhood drawing right through to this important work that we're going to get into Um how he reached this point of getting to work and, and tell the stories of refugees and mafios or supergrasses and people in the Reaper Barn in Hamburg. So go back and hear the journey of part one. We're going to get into all that juicy stuff now for part two and continue that journey. So a quick thank you to the sponsors, illustrationweb.com, heartinternet.co.uk. Illustration Web represent a hell of a lot of talented artists. They tell the story of some cool projects. They've got animators, illustrators, lettering specialists, fashion illustrators, live workers, uh, you name it, it's all going on. Go and check them out. Hearts Internet, supporting uh, the creative industries through shows like this. They provide SEO, optimized, uh, search engine optimization, social media advice, um, hosting, domain names, all the great tech stuff, and they give us a tip. Go back and listen to part one for this episode's digital tip. Um, and thanks to both our sponsors for their ongoing support. Also, the Association of Illustrators, likewise. Um, you've all been crucial to me getting to this 100th milestone. Um, and I hope you're going to be with me for the, the, the foreseeable future as this show grows, I hope. So please, guys, share the love. Get us your feedback on part one at Arrest on the Mix on Twitter. I want to hear about your thoughts on part two. Also, it's we're going to up the ante with some intense stories on this one, so I'm looking forward to hearing the reactions on all of it. Give us a follow on Instagram at ArrestOnLimix. Drop us a little review on iTunes. If you get a moment, please, it does mean a lot and it helps the show. So, without further ado, um, I hope you all had a great Christmas and are feeling good for the new year. And if not, I hope the show does something about that. So, here we go, part two of the 100th episode of Arrest All Mimics, the creative innovation podcast with Olivier Kugler. Um, but the, yeah, this is a question that's just jumped in my head now. This wasn't on my on my list, which always happens. But <laughs> um, do you think if if the time when you were beginning, it sounds like observation was a, a, a real, just being aware of the world around you was a real uh, important thing. Yeah. I think about people now, you know, walking around on social media constantly, bumping yeah. into people in the street twenty four seven. I worry that people getting started now miss moments and things around them. Do you, do, you, do you think that might have been different for you if you if that was the era you were studying in and you had Instagram and you had Twitter and all these things? Do you think you would have been remained mindful or do you think maybe that could have been become a distraction? Definitely. I, I, I see it a lot, actually. I, I see over the last years I, I got regularly invited to go into illustration courses and, and show the, the work to the students. My, show my work to the students and I just did for I think five or six weeks ago I was in um, Sheffield mm. at the illustration degree there and I noticed it, I noticed it before but I saw it again there were before I did the talk most of the students that were sitting there they were going through the iPhones or their mobile phones and just looking at the screens and I remember when, when I was studying we were sitting there and doing work Mm-hmm. When we were waiting for the teacher to prepare the kind of the, the course or when mm-hmm. the guest speaker came in, lots of us had our sketchbooks and we were drawing the the tutor or, or, or the environment and many of them were sitting around and, and looking at the mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah, I guess it's what I told you earlier was when, when I work in my studio, I often get distracted by, oh, by the do. internet. And, yeah. And 
it is such a great thing to have the internet to do research and, and also to promote your work but it, I think it is a danger for yeah for for especially probably for for kids mm-hmm. and when they start there they grow up with it and, and if they don't get taught from the beginning to use social media and, and the whole thing in with a certain kind of discipline it can it's a massive time killer mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is it can drain whole days at a time yeah. and I see all the time and I, I, I don't want to be totally negative because it's a wonderful tool yeah. that we have and it's great but just you know I just I just I, I'm a little, I, I'm, I feel the same way about you know when you said about interesting looking guys and, and you know I grew up in a town called Keithley in West Yorkshire which somebody yeah. recently an old drunk guy there recently described it as one, one giant Star Wars bar <laughs> <laughs> and he's not wrong he's, he's full of characters and yeah, I, yeah. I had such an appreciation <laughs> of that when I started to go out and drink beer and, and go out with friends yeah. I would I just, you know, I would bump into these builders and electricians who were just louder than yeah. they're larger than life, these characters, and I've always had a fascination with interesting human beings. I'm the guy who talks to the person who's shouting on the bus, you know, I just, I want to know the story, I want, yeah. I want to get under the yeah. skin of that, and uh, old buildings, old signs, it doesn't matter what it is. I was in yeah. Hong Kong recently, and it's just mind-blowing, sensory experience, yeah. Yeah. and it just seems like such an important part of your work, directly, but also an important part of you seeing things, yeah. and like you said, you're seeing everything, I think that... It's a valuable. It's just a valuable lesson. I just think. I just think it's a difficult thing, probably for tutors to deal with now and to keep yeah, the yeah. kids focused yeah. because it's so ingrained. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to go on a big tangent. It was just. A, it's just something that you know. Yeah. Yeah, you, you see it when when you. Yeah, it is a danger for the students, and I, I used to draw. During my studies in New York, I was drawing all the time, and when I was waiting for the subway, I got my sketchbook out and mm-hmm. I just drew what was in front of me. Yeah. Now there's a. I actually I still don't have an, a smartphone. I still have this old Brilliant. mobile phone. Yeah. I, I can just text with it and make phone calls. But it is very seductive. When you've got an iPhone and you've got to wait for the train mm-hmm. half an hour, you you get it out. You look at your emails. You read the newspaper or whatever. But back then you just drew and and you use this time and, and it makes you, mm-hmm. your work becomes better. And you've got your eyes and ears open. You see what's going on around you. Yeah. I never understand people in, in the subway who, who or in the, in the tube who listen to music. When when you, especially when you're an artist, you want to yeah. hear what the people are talking about. Yeah, yeah. I get that people don't talk anywhere. They don't talk anymore in, in the trains. They, they all have their things on and mm. plugged in. But um, yeah, it's important. It's so important for especially students to kind of learn yeah. the discipline. Yeah, become it's, disciplined. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the Oxfam work, if you don't mind. I, I found that that sounded like a, a fascinating project. I know it's quite a leap, but what was? Yeah. How did that come about? What was that experience like? Um, yeah, I guess assigned by Oxfam to go to Burkina Faso to do drawings of people whose lives are getting effect, effect, affected mm-hmm. by the the food crisis in, in the Sahel. So on and um, what's his name? I think Ian Brady is the name of the the press press person that who commissioned me. He, he saw work I did for the Guardian. I did um, over several years. I did double page spreads um, with portraits of people I met in the streets or on commissions by the by the Guardian, and, and they got published in the G two supplement mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, this column was, was called Googler's People. I remember it well, I think that's why I discovered your work. And um, I did drawings of, of my 
fruit and vegetable seller, an old East Ender. He did this in the third generation. He had this market stall in on Bethlehem Green Road in front front of the big Tesco supermarket, and and he told me all these crazy stories. And and I did a drawing of him. I did a drawing of of um, a lifer of of a uh, someone of of a criminal in, in a prison. I got in there and I spent time with him an hour in his cell. I took photos of him. I interviewed him, and I met a lot of interesting great characters during this doing this um, series of drawings and uh, yeah Ian from, from Oxfam he saw this, this, this work in, in the Guardian and he asked me to do a several a similar series of drawings of farmers and um, refugees folk from Mali and um, they also sent me to a gold mine it's uh, like a small artisanal gold mine where lots of uh, children work because uh, they need to kind of supplement their, their parents' income so they can't go to school and so I did um, I, I think I spent a week in Burkina Faso and I was I got picked up at the airport in Ouagadougou from um, the kind of the station mm. the guy who was, was um, responsible for for uh, media work and I spent a week with him we were driving around with the jeep we met farmers we went to this gold um, what do you call it Gold into the gold fields, wow. and um, we also um, it was at a time when, when there was also a kind of a uprising in uh, Mali, kind of a civil war, and lots of people, mainly two Arabs, there they fled the country, and they went to a large refugee camp close to the border uh, in Burkina Faso, and um, that was was really interesting meeting. All, all these people and uh, and these were people you you see refugees you, you see people suffering from from food crisis from from famines you see it a lot in in, in on the telly you you read about them you hear about them on the radio but when you meet these people in, in person it is it is something different it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of um, and it, this was also one of, one of these kind of milestones in my career, I really enjoyed working on these drawings, getting a commission to go out in the world and actually do something good good with your work. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was, was, was a great assignment. So the thing is, I mean, to, to be, yeah, to, to, to travel, you, you mm-hmm. had a really good point there, which I'm sure will cover more when we talk about your book, but um, to, to just meet other human beings, it, it takes all of the, the bullshit that we're we're presented with through the media. You know, we, we often see, it doesn't matter what it is, refugees, whatever issue, through the, the lens of whatever media outlet mm-hmm. is presenting this to us. And it doesn't matter where a person's from, what their backstory is, when you meet another human being and then hear their story and talk to them, as you said, it just it transforms everything in the way that you yeah. see them. So yeah. it's really kind of fascinating to do that. You can be from, you know, different corners of the globe, completely different backstories, but the, the beautiful things that happen, the little commonalities that you might never consider that you would have with someone it's kind of a beautiful thing um, that you know the more you travel the more you get to experience that definitely um, yeah. you know and so what was the um, what was the presentation that Oxfam did was this a campaign was this uh, uh, it got published in the Guardian in the G2 supplement also it was all yeah, part of the same yeah, yeah, okay yeah. yeah I think Ian he planned it that the drawings because he knew my work for the Guardian and 
he was hoping that the drawings would get published in the Guardian. Okay, and, and, cool. And yeah. So, so they did in the end. Uh, yeah. yeah. So absolutely amazing. So by by this point, did you, you know, I would think you are like, you're probably well underway knowing this is you now. This is this is what you love to do and, and definitely and drive it. Yeah. 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 Um, did you, Did you find that once you you gathered that confidence and got that sense that that more opportunities opened for you? Um, yeah, and I actually doing this work for for the Guardian. Um, I love doing these 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 jobs, and, and they were so important for my career. But I noticed that I wanted to do longer stories. I wanted to do books or longer mm. longer uh, visual pieces, visual essays, or, or even yeah, graphic novel style reportage pieces. Mm. And um, I was lucky when as soon as I stopped, I stopped getting work from the Guardian when the financial crisis hit, 2008, 2008-ish. And, um, and when I was doing them, I, I thought it would be nice not just to do only a double-page spread about this, this uh, market trade on Bethlehem Green Road. It would be nice to do a whole story, maybe even a whole book, just mm-hmm. following this, this guy over several days, maybe going to the market where he buys his, his produce yeah. and then meeting his colleagues maybe going home with him and meeting his wife and then going to the pub with him after his work and the document is more than just a snapshot of him standing in front of, of the his, his um, cart so um, it happened I went on a weekend holiday to Paris but before I went I also approached several art directors in Paris I sent them emails with work of mine and asked him if I can, can meet them when I'm there so I went um, I stayed for a week then or for, for several more days and um, I also I went to a bookshop in Paris and I saw a, a book it's a mixture between a book and a magazine it's called Mantea like Mantea for, for 21 for the 21st century and um, it's a large publication it just got, I think was probably even the, I think it was the first edition of, of the magazine and it's a large reportage magazine and all the articles there, there's one in the middle there's one photo reportage piece but all the written articles are illustrated by, by great illustrators mm. and at the end of each publication they, had a, they have a 30 page graphic reportage like a graphic novel but it's a journalistic reportage piece uh, in comic form and I thought oh my god this is what I want to do 30 page telling the story of a good person uh, in a sequential way so um, I bought the magazine and I called immediately there were still telephone boxes <laughs> I called the, the magazine I asked if I can come around and I'd show my work to, to the art director then I I had the luck because I did work for the Guardian before. I said I did work for the Guardian, and um, I think this opened me the door, and I could meet the art director the next day. And um, he liked the work, and then a week later I got my first assignment from them. Mm. At the beginning, they only wanted me to do double page spread, and they told me I can do whatever I want to do as long as it's somehow related to daily life in London. And I just went to a local East End pub. Yeah, where I always wanted to draw before and I just drew the scenery and, and the, the characters hanging out in there Yeah, and um, they published it they, they liked it and then 
maybe half a year later, I sent an email to the art director and mentioned that I would like to go, that I'm planning to go to, to Iran on a kind of a month-long trip. And um, I didn't mention that I would like to do some illustrations about it, but um, I just mentioned casually. So, um, but on the next day, I got an email from the editor of the magazine. And he asked me if I could do a 30-page um, com- reportage comic about a person I meet whilst I'm in Iran. Wow. And <clears throat> yeah, it was, was, I guess, the next step then of, of my mm. career. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to go traveling in Iran, but I didn't want to do, I didn't want it to be a tourist kind of, I didn't want to discover the country as a tourist. So... I thought it would be nice if I can meet someone who travels professionally in Iran. Uh, okay. So, and I did a lot of hitchhiking when I was younger through, through Europe, and I was found it quite exciting. And, and I often get uh, rides from 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 truckers, and I thought this is a cool, kind of a cool job. They, they travel a lot, and it's kind of. Yeah. And I also watched a lot of trucker movies, American trucker movies when I was a kid. <laughs> and I had this kind of romantic idea of the lifestyle of a trucker, and I, I thought. Yeah, I would love to meet a, a trucker in Iran and go with him on a long day, on a wow. several-day journey through the country. So I mentioned this to a studio mate of mine in the studio here, Ali. He he's Iranian. He had a small kind of adventure travel travel company in here in the studio, and I just asked him as a joke if he knows any truckers in Iran. And he said, actually, Oli, I know a friend of a friend of mine. He owns a trucking company in Tehran. Oh, wow. So <clears throat> through this contact, I got introduced when I was Iran, in Iran to Mazi, um, 30, 38 years old trucker, who um, I went on a journey then. I, I, was, I was already traveling in, in Iran for a week when I got the phone call that they've got the truck driver for me and, and I need to travel to Tehran and they gave me the they, they wrote down the, the kind of the address of, of a truck a, a workshop of a mechanics workshop in, in a suburb of, of Tehran mm-hmm. and I had to show this to the taxi driver and, and the taxi driver drove me an hour, almost two hours all the way out of Tehran to this more kind of kind of a workshop where I met Mazi and his, his, his truck was just getting prepared for, for a long day journey and yeah it was, was a great experience I spent four days with him we, we drove from um, Tehran we drove north into the mountains to a bottling plant where they were putting water from, from, the, from a source mm. into bottles and he had to drive a whole load of, of bottles of bottled water all the way to the country to the desert through the mountains to a small island in the Persian Gulf and I basically documented the trucker's journey wow <laughs> it was, was, a, was a great adventure I enjoyed it's it it's real adventure yeah. I mean that's fantastic the whole story's great I mean, yeah. to speak I know you know, people probably listen and think oh my god like, how does he have the courage to do this in country, you know, new countries and analyzing people and lots of unknowns what there's a story you told um when you did a talk that I saw at Yoilo, uh-huh. uh, the one about the, uh, the the grass, the mafia grass, 
Do you oh, mind yeah. telling that story again? I think it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it was. Um, <clears throat> I got. There's a magazine in Switzerland, in, or it was in Germany, it's a German publication, and it's called Reportagen. Reportage in English, and um, it publishes long form uh, reportage pieces. And it's a small format, it's an A5 publication, it's beautifully designed. And they again, they only use illustration to mm. illustrate the, the stories. And um, I've been knowing this magazine for a while, and I also I had to do a presentation in Switzerland. And at this presentation, there was also the editor editor in chief of, of the magazine. And um, we started talking with John, and I told him I would really like to do a piece for for reportage and magazine and I also like the idea of working with a journalist just accompanying uh, a writer or a journalist who's, who's writing on a piece and um, and a couple of days later he, he told me that there is he's got um, Italian German writer who has been following um, a supergrass um, a member of the Ndrangheta the Calabria Mafia and um, he got into a witness protection program and the journalist is, is writing about his experience and um, he's going to meet, he met the mafioso already I think two or three times before and he was about to meet him again in a small town close to Naples in, um, in his apartment where he's basically hiding from his former associates and um, he asked me if I would be interested in joining the journalist and, and spend time with the mafioso in his house where he's under police protection and just draw the daily life and or and the interior of, of, the, of the of this of this apartment and I was a little bit worried at the beginning and he told me I, I, I should <laughs> give the journalist a, a call and, and see if he's comfortable with it and uh, if I'm comfortable with it then uh, Sandro, the journalist, told me um, that it could be dangerous. It is relatively dangerous, but not that dangerous because the mafioso told him he feels the safe. He, he feels the safest when when he's around journalists because he knows this is a time when he won't get hurt. Nobody will <laughs> attack him. You're shielding this, this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I thought, hmm, and. Um, <clears throat> But obviously, I was curious. I thought yeah. this is a one in a lifetime opportunity. And I always wanted to work with a journalist, mm. and so, so I agreed to do that. And um, so I had to fly to Naples and um, spend to go into the bus. To, I actually had to go to the other coast, to the um, Adriatic coast, and I was given an address, and I, I need to go to a hotel in this town where I'm going to meet the journalist there and then we're going to go to the house the secret secret flat in this town and um, and it was actually it was a really from it was an exciting time it was for me it was like an adventure it was exciting to get out and as, as an illustrator you spend most of your time sitting in the studio and doing, doing your drawings and it was a, another great uh, possibility to go out and um, I think we spent four or five days with him we slept in a hotel 
in the nights, but otherwise we spend the rest of the day with him um, and his family in, in a small apartment. Mm. And um, I forgot the name of the mafioso. It's I can't remember it at the moment. But um, got, yeah, Luigi Bonaventura. Luigi, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't. And he was actually was the don. He was the head of uh, the town where he's from. Of the, he was the head of the this branch of the mafia. And um, apparently, he must have been really good with what he was doing. He because the police didn't really have any idea about what he's been doing. He had, I think, a successful restaurant in town, and he basically earned, he got his position within the mafia from his father, because I think his father got into prison, and then his uncle got into prison, into prison and then he basically had to do their job, and he told us that he didn't really want to do this, but... Uh, <clears throat> then after several years he didn't want to do this anymore and he, he's got younger kids and his son was I think when we met him was maybe 13 and apparently he, he if Luigi would have gone to prison his son at some stage would have basically to follow in, in his footsteps mm. and he didn't want to do this and um, he told us that this was the reason why he went into to the police and became a supercross and um so he, yeah, he, um, because of, of him becoming super cross, I think many of his former associates got a very long prison sentence. I think more than a thousand years mm. in prison have been kind of dished out to his former associates because wow. of his actions. So they obviously, they, um, yeah, they put a contract out of him, out on him. Yeah. And they, Apparently, there are contract killers who are out there who are supposed to kill them. And um, um, yeah, he doesn't leave the flat. When he hardly ever leaves the flat. So when we were there, it was, was in February, the week before it snowed a lot. And um, his kids said, We want to go out with you, we want to build a snowman. And, um, and he, he went out with them for, for an hour and he said it would be fine. And, and yeah, he showed us photos of, of, of him and his kids with the snowman and and I also took reference photos for him and I, I drew him holding the mobile phone with, with the picture of, of him and his kids in front mm-hmm. of the snowman and um, yeah that, on, on the one side it was, was quite scary obviously because we there could have been a possibility that someone comes and tries to kill him yeah. whilst we were there so um, so we were always on, on the edge when we were sitting um, Sandro, the journalist, was, was interviewing him and I just did drawings of, of the two of them but also of the interior of the flat and there was this one time when I was drawing the door of, of, of the, the apartment because I thought it's a kind of a central thing because if someone's going to come they would come through the door yeah. and um, whilst I was drawing Drawing the door, someone knocked on the door. Oh, 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 I thought, God. oh my God, so I went away from the door. And <laughs> you could really feel whenever someone rang the door, someone knocked on the door, everyone was kind of becoming a bit edgy. And mm. everyone looked into each other's eyes. And so, um, yeah, the door knocked, Luigi got up, he went to the door and he looked through the 
what's it called? The, the hole? The spy the, hole. The, the spy hole. And he said, no one is there. So he went back, and then it knocked again. I said, oh shit, this is, this is bad. <laughs> and, and then he went again to the door, he looked through it, and he just opened the door and I said, oh my God. And then there was a little, little, little boy or little girl. It was a little girl standing there. And she was just a, a neighbor from upstairs and she said she wants to play with, with his girl. But the girl was, was still at school and we all thought, oh my God. This Wow, but, God, um, that's the closest you want to come to danger. So it was, it was very scary on this side. And it was also, of course, it was, was very sad and depressing to hear yes. this, this, this poor man. He's, got, he's, in, he's in trouble. Mm-hmm. He, he, he told us, it's not a question. If I'm going to get killed, it's a question when, when they're going to hit me. Wow. And he's got to live with this yeah. kind of um, yeah, feeling in his head. And, and he will never be able to relax, I guess. Yeah. That is kind of heartbreaking. And then he's obviously worried about his, his, his family. Something could happen to them. Mm-hmm. I think in the mafia they used to have this. I don't know a lot about it, but someone told me they used to have this codex of, of honor that you don't hit the, the family of someone. But mm-hmm. you only if, if someone betrays you, you 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 kill the person who betrayed you. But you leave the family alone. Mm-hmm. But this is not the way it used to be. So it's oh, shit. Um, so, yeah, imagine living with this this burden on you. Mm. you. You don't know what's going to happen and, and when. And, and. But then on the other side, was, for me, it was interesting to see how we interact with his children. And he was very... You could see he's a strict dad. His, his kids, they were very disciplined. They, whenever we were eating, they were eating with us. And, and they didn't talk when everyone else was talking. Mm. And... Each, after each meal they, they sat with you at the table for another 10-15 minutes and then they politely asked daddy or mama can I, can I get up and go to my room and play and um, so it was quite nice to, to see the, the family and how they were holding mm-hmm. but they kind of keeping together and, mm-hmm. and kind of supporting each other and um, it was also amazing because um, Paula I think that's the name of his wife. She, she was like a the stereotype of an Italian woman. It's the way I, I imagine she spent a lot of time in the kitchen and she was preparing meals, great pasta dishes, and then she asked us every morning when we went in there, she asked us what she wants to what she's going to cook for lunch and if this is okay, and if you would have rather beer or wine for, for yeah. lunch. And um and I love to eat and, and the, the whole Italian culture, like the French culture, is, there's so much based around the, the, the lunchtime and the, the mm-hmm. time when the family is eating. So we spend an hour or two hours just having lunch. And then, and I loved to depict. I, I really enjoyed depicting and drawing these these scenes yeah. of the kind of the family life. And, mm. yeah. and is it, is it, do I remember correctly that you said that, have I made this up, the boy was playing Hitman video game? Yeah, the, the boy, um, his... Old, older son, I think I mentioned before, his, his name is 13, 14 years old, and he spent a lot of time, like probably every other kid at this age, on, on the, I think it's the PlayStation, and, and his favorite game is called Hitman. <laughs> one of these I thought I'd made that up in my head, it seemed so no, no. far fetched. <laughs> no, no, no. And um, I didn't. I didn't do the interview and it was, Sandra was, was doing everything and, and 
I, I would have loved to have asked the kid. I, I assume the kid, he knows what, 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 what's going on. He is aware of the situation. But, mm. um, yeah, but he still loved playing this game. And, and I don't want to judge him. And I did a drawing of him yeah. playing this game. And I also wrote into the drawing that this is a favorite, favorite game. Mm. And I don't want to judge him because I, guess I, every other, I would have played this God, game. Me too. I, I, did. Did. I did play that game. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah Luigi told us when, when he was a child, he got trained to become a marksman. He remembered the time when he started to shoot with a small kind of air rifle mm-hmm. when he was a kid. But then when he was getting older, his uncle or his dad, he took him to the beach and then he started to shoot with a proper kind of a pistol and then with rifles and then machine guns. And so he got really trained into doing this. And um, I don't think that he tr- gave this training to his kid as well. But you could see that he must have been talking with his child about how to use a gun and, and things like that because there was this one occasion after a dinner um, the boy went back to his kids room and he came back he had three or four of the, the Nerf guns you know the, the, yeah. kind of the, the these very colourful toy guns it's that shoot these foam, shoot this, uh, foam pellets and yeah he just started to, to shoot at us and his, his dad immediately told him off that he's not supposed to do that. And, but then he just... And I started to... I, I love doing these games as well. So, so I took... Before the dad told him off, I took one of these guns too. And I was shooting at, at the sun a little bit. So we were kind of hiding. And then Sandro, the journalist, joined in. And then Luigi said, all, all right. He also got one of these, these Nerf guns. And we were just kind of hiding in the flat and trying to <laughs> shoot each other. And... And I remember um, that um, yeah, I was hiding behind the behind the, the kitchen counter, and Luigi was on the other side, and I wanted to kind of shoot at him, so I just put up my head over the kitchen counter, and as, as soon as I put my forehead over the kitchen counter, he already placed a shot on, in the middle of my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! And, wow! And. Um, yeah, so, so he definitely knew what, what he was doing with, with the gun. And, and I also remember that his son, actually, he told me on the day before that he already showed me the Nerf guns and I saw them in his kid's room and I did a drawing of the, the guns lying on his bed. And he told me then that, do you know, Oli, you, you can also kill someone without, with a rifle without any ammunition. And then he showed me how to... Used the, the butt of the rifle, <laughs> hit it on the head, and um, yeah, this makes makes you think again. I, I don't want to judge the father and the yeah. child because when, when I was his age, I was running around and I told you I grew up in, in the forest, yeah. and we run around with, with rifles and we're shooting at each other, yeah, and, yeah. and we're pretending to kitchen each other with, with the rifle butt. <laughs> so, but then you you see. How easy it is when, when kind of playing with guns and becomes the, the real thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting the, the fascination that boys. I've got a little boy. He's four years old. Mm. And the fascination we've got with with guns, with knives, and, and things like that. Mm. And I, I tried not to expose himself. I to expose. <laughs> <laughs> I tried not to expose my son to kind of 
yeah, pictures of, of guns and, and knives and swords and stuff, but they just pick it up and, and mm. then... Yeah, I think it's just important to uh, make sure they know the difference, that, you know, it's, yeah. that, you know, it's one of those yeah. things that you should try and thwart, it's just a kind of, yeah, just uh, the lesson's there. But my God, what, yeah, what, what an absolute adventure, which, I mean, I guess, you know, that's, that's a perfect thing to talk about in the book then, because... You know, um, so escaping wars and waves, right? That's the title. Oh, waves exactly. And wars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It started out with a commission from uh, Doctors Without Borders in, in Switzerland. Doctors Without Borders in Switzerland, they are a partner of the Fumetto International Comics Festival in, in Lucerne. It happens every year, and they have uh, invited over the last years comic book artists or illustrators and journalists to go out into the field and do pieces documenting the work Doctors Without Borders are doing in refugee camps mm-hmm. all over the world in, in conflict zones. And they asked me then yeah, in, in the autumn of 2013 if I would like to do, if I would like to go to one of their projects and then do um, a reportage or documentary drawings. Of, of one of their projects and I thought it would be nice nice but I thought it would be interesting to go to a refugee camp mm-hmm. uh, because the Syrian war the civil war in Syria already I think was going on for almost two years and I thought at first I thought it would be I wanted to go into the Congo MSF Doctors Without Borders are doing work in, in the Congo and I thought it would be interesting to go to Central Africa and, and um, do a piece about um, the conflict there and, and the people suffering from the conflict in the Congo. But then I thought I, I should go do something about Syrian refugees because it's the largest subject matter at the moment. And also my, my parents, they actually, they went, they've been in Syria on, on kind of a, um, with a group for tourist holiday for, for pensioners and, and they told me how beautiful the country is. It was just half a year before the war started over there and they said how, how generous and how kind the, the people are and then they always they showed me photos and I had such a great experience there. And so I had a little bit of a connection. I've never been in Syria before but I had a bit of a connection mm-hmm. to the country and I also I, I wanted to go there to the country and yeah, and then I had this, this possibility and um, I told... Um, Doctors Without Borders, that um, I would like, love to visit a refugee camp in one of the countries that is bordering uh, Syria. And they told me that there's a refugee camp in Iraqi Kurdistan. It's called Domis. And um, they asked me if I would like to go there. So I said, yeah, of course. And, and um, So I went there in the December 2013. And um, yeah, Doctors Without Borders, they... They also knew that my work got published in magazines before and in newspapers and, and they were hoping that the work will also get published internationally and also exhibited at the Fumetto Comic Festival. And yeah, I spent two weeks in the camp, the first two weeks um, of December. I had a local translator, uh, a Syrian Kurd, who helped me conduct interviews with the... With, uh, um, inhabitants of the camp and uh, so I spent a lot of time just walking through the camp it was, was cold it was muddy very muddy there was only one paved street 
that went through the camp, but all the other streets were mud fields basically. It was raining most of the time, so we had to, you could only walk um, around with um, the Wellington boots. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we, we walked around, and I um, when, when I saw people who looked interesting, who I felt inspired, I thought I would really like to draw this person. And I asked the translator to basically introduce myself to the people and uh, tell them what I'm doing there and what's going to happen with the drawings. And um, when they said it's okay, and I also told them that uh, in order to do my drawings, I need to take reference photos of them. There were many people who didn't like to get photographed. And um, because also it's a very political thing that people didn't, some people didn't want to get recognized and tell their stories in the media because they thought they would get into trouble with the, mm-hmm. with um, one or the other of the kind of the warring factions in, in, in Syria. So there, some people were concerned and, and didn't want me to draw in photograph and interview them. But then on the other side, there were lots of people who were interested in it and they gave it the permission to mm-hmm. to interview them and, and photograph them. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I did there. Mm. There. And um, I noticed in the camp, I, I told you earlier that I was in a refugee camp in Burkina Faso at the border to, to Mali, and I noticed that there were no shops in the camp, there were no kind of no schools, there wasn't really anything happening. People just spent most of the time in, in, in their tents and were waiting basically to for the conflict to stop. And I noticed in the camp in Iraqi Kurdistan that there were lots of small shops and, and lots of businesses. For example, if you used to be a, a barber in Damascus, you opened a barber shop in, in the refugee camp. So, uh-huh. Or if you had a restaurant in, in Aleppo, you opened a restaurant in, in the camp. Uh-huh. If you were a mechanic, you had opened your... So life was just going on in, in this camp. And um, people were continuing to do what, what they did before the war started in, in their home hometowns and yeah, they got published in a, in a German in the German edition of Le Monde Diplomatique and uh, they got published in Internationale magazine in Italy in um, Port magazine here in the UK and um, yeah, they were commissioned by Harper's magazine mm. and um, then when they won the drawings were awarded with the World Illustration Award and um, yeah, and then they got published in the Guardian as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So at what point did you start to consider the book then? Um, was this? I <coughs> Did you expect? First of all, did you expect the response that you got? That the kind of that these people being published around. Um, yeah. The, the thing that um, at the beginning it was already Doctors Without Borders. They. Were talk, uh, they talked already with the people from Le Monde Diplomatique in Germany. And uh, this was already a given that the finished drawing will be published in, in Germany and also published, uh, um, also exhibited in Switzerland. But then, yeah, I was really excited that Harper's Magazine wanted to publish the drawings. And um, they actually wanted me to do 10 pages at the beginning, what would have been amazing. But their deadline was quite tight, so I could only do three per- pages. Unfortunately, but um, yeah, I'm also very happy that these stories were published in Harper's Magazine because I know the art director 
Stacy already for a long time. She was one of the first people who commissioned me, mm. and she gave me work when I was, was still in New York. And um, also Harper's Magazine, I, I think it is one, or maybe even the oldest magazine in, in the US, and they've got a long tradition of um, sending illustrators or artists to do a um, journalistic approach, to do this kind of reportage drawings. I think it goes back all the way to the American Civil War in the 18, early 1860s, where they sent artists who go into the trenches and, and, and draw the soldiers and, and the fighting. So, um, and then, yeah, you, you asked me about the book, and uh, I already had the idea in, in the back of my head that when I was in the camp, I was, guarding, I was uh, gathering a lot of material, I was doing lots of interviews, and I took um, thousands of reference photos, and I thought it would already be nice to do a book, a collection of, of portraits of other people in the camp. And, um, but then, yeah, I, and then the drawings got published, and I was really excited about it, and um, I applied for an Arts Council grant. I spent, I think, three months, almost full-time, just um, working on the application. It's very time-consuming, wow. this. <laughs> <clears throat> and I've never done this before, a grant application. It takes, you, you need to, ideally, if, if you want to get the grant for a book, you need to have a publisher in place, you need to have exhibitions planned, you need to have to, a talking tour through the UK, talk at different universities, and and um, everything needs to, all these kind of uh, events need to be thoroughly already, ideally you need to have a date already when the thing mm. is going to take place. And, and I, I contacted lots of people, I had contacts with a publisher who was very much interested in it. And um, I contacted all the kind of illustration, the heads of illustration programs I, I know here in the country. and. Uh, they all gave. They all said would be really interesting. They want me to come in, but they couldn't give me a precise date yet because it would happen next year in the yeah. next term, and I didn't have the dates. So I didn't. In in the application, you need to say it's either scheduled or um, confirmed, mm. and I ticked the boxes for scheduled for all the talks, even though they were kind of confirmed, but we didn't have a date. And then I didn't get the grant, and, and they told me the arts council people they were actually great because they, when when I got the rejection, they told me I should call them if I want to talk with them, and and they, they will tell me what what the problem was with the application, mm. and then they told me it was very likely that I, I think I had ten or fifteen talks were scheduled but not confirmed, and and if you've got a certain percentage of not confirmed in your application and you, you don't get it. That's, uh, that's what I was told. That I guess if, and I met people later that told me I should have just ticked confirm. <laughs> yeah. So I, I spent ages just, and, and you, you've got to plan strategically because you need to have, have the dates to so close to each other. So if you do a talk in Preston, you also do another talk in, in also in the north. And, and, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it took ages and I didn't get it. And um, 
during the application process whilst I was waiting, I was very optimistic. I thought I would get the grant, but so I continued working on drawings about people I met in Domi's refugee camp. But then when I got the, the rejection, I stopped drawing and I took on commercial work because I had to earn some money. Mm. And, um, and then maybe three or four months later, I got an email from the Association of Illustrators and they told me that my drawings got um, the drawings got they got published in Harper's Magazine. Um, were shortlisted for the Association of Illustration, the the World Illustration Award, and uh, yeah, I was super excited about that. And I they told me I shouldn't tell anyone, but then I contacted uh, immediately Doctors Without Borders in Switzerland and I told them about it. And Andrea Kaufmann, the lady I worked with at Doctors Without Borders, she asked me immediately if I would like to go to Greece to Kosa Island to do another series of drawings of um, Syrian refugees arriving in, you've, you've seen the pictures, you've seen on, on, in these overcrowded dinghies from, from the Turkish mm -hmm. mainland. And um, yeah, so, so she sent me there and um, I was there in August 2015, spent mm -hmm. two weeks on the holiday island, it was, was very hot and uh, it was a surreal Thing because it's a holiday island, you had lots of tourists on the island just lying on the beaches, and then you had that early in the morning you had the, the refugee boats coming onto the shore. They, they started at night time in the couple mm. of the night, just in Turkey, Turkish coast, maybe six, five, six miles away. So they started, I don't know, maybe midnight or something like that, and then they arrive on, on the coast, of course, maybe. Five six o'clock in the morning. So I used to get up quite early. I went on the bike and then I cycled out of town to the beaches where the refugees arrived. And um, yeah, it was was weird because I, the the refugees came in their boats. The boats were overcrowded and they just mm. basically risked their lives. And I felt uncomfortable approaching them. And I didn't want to take photos when when they arrived on the island because they. Yeah just went through this um, through a very dangerous situation I didn't want them to see the first thing is, is a German guy taking photos of them <laughs> and, and asking them questions about their journey and um, because the first thing is when they arrived they, they all they called their, their family mm -hmm. still back in Syria or in Turkey and, and so I felt a little bit weird and out of place there and, and but then after a while I went there several times I told myself I, I need to approach the people and ask them the questions because that's the reason why I'm there. Yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, yeah, the, the people, they were very... The people on Kors Island, the people I talked with, they were very... They, they arrived on the island and, and they thought they would be able to take the ferry the next day or in the same evening from Kors to um, Thessaloniki to uh, Athens, to the port of Athens. And... So they would be able to continue their journey up, up north to, to Germany and, and um, yeah, to northern Europe. But um, the Greek authorities, they didn't give them the permission. They had first had to, they had to register and they had to wait a week, sometimes two or even three weeks to get the, the papers to leave the island. And the people were very upset about that and, and annoyed because they already spent a lot of money paying the smugglers to take them from Syria to Turkey and then mm. to put them on the boats cost many, many thousands of pounds and um, yeah, many of them didn't have any money anymore and they were 
they didn't get any support from the Greek authorities. There, there were no toilets, no showers, no accommodation for them. So they basically they had to sleep in the streets and in the um, parks and on the beach. People were sleeping on, on the, mm. uh, the how do you call it, the, the beach chairs or the, the, yeah, the, the beach loungers, the yeah. chairs, yeah. And yeah, they were very annoyed and then they thought, yeah, we've finally reached Europe, but then the mm. people have us, the authorities let us sleep on, in, in the streets. And so then they were really annoyed and um, I guess you can see this in the drawings when you read the text. Yeah. yeah. How did you feel about it? How did you feel about it? This must have been, you must have seen uh, distressing things and, and felt a range of emotions during this experience. Now, example, I've got, I did this one drawing of, of a lawyer who, um, a lawyer and his extended family, they arrived early in the morning in their rubber dinghy on, on, on the island and he told me, yeah, we're going to go to the police station, now we register and then we go in the, the same evening, we, we take the ferry to Athens. And um, so he was really optimistic at the beginning, but then I obviously also met people who already waited a week or two weeks and who were very frustrated and um, then I couldn't totally understand them. It's, it must must be horrible to go through the whole thing, through the war, the mm. the, the flights, and uh, and then you just have to wait for ages, just for some because the bureaucracy is so bad and inefficient. But then on the other side, I, I understand that people need to get registered and everything. Yes. That you can't just of come in. But yeah, but I doubt that the registration process was any. A thorough screening of the people. I, I think they were just probably also deliberately slow and yeah, not to encourage any more people coming in. Yeah, and um, yeah, I guess the saddest thing is obviously when you see parents with young kids. Yeah, and you've got to. Do, there were lots of men, young men, and they okay that they can sleep outside. They, they, it's not great, but but yeah, they, they, they manage. They manage easily. They get through it, but then when you see elderly people or yeah, kids, yeah, and it's really hard. And I met uh, one one mother; she was traveling alone with her son, and he had asthma, and he just got to sleep on in the dust on the dust on, on the street, and mm-hmm. it was quite hard to see, obviously. Yeah, and um, yeah, and it's also one one of I met elderly people who. Um, are wheelchair wheelchair users, and obviously they couldn't take their wheelchairs on on the on the rubber dinghies because they would have taken too much space. So they um, luckily there was a, a local charity, and on on course, who um, tried to provide the refugees with uh, wheelchairs and, and also with kind of baby strollers for the families and um, yeah. Mm. I mean, we touched on it before and I mentioned about the more you travel and the more you see of the world the more you kind of want to distill that experience of meeting all these wonderful people and then seeing a broader <clears throat> scope of life and bring it back to people who maybe haven't and you hope that this will kind of maybe change the opinions of people who, who maybe see a small world yeah I guess my, my assignment was from Doctors Without Borders to, to go there and create drawings that will help raise awareness of the situation of the refugees, and um, I guess that's what, what the book book is doing. And mm. I also kind of 
I, in, I like the idea of, of um, many people told me actually that they want me, they, they, they said thank you very much for, for giving me a voice basically, so, so I gave the people mm. a platform yeah. to talk about their, their situation and also about their anger, especially on, on course Island, people were very angry and also but a big problem I had when I was in Iraqi Kurdistan in the refugee camp. I wanted to interview, interview women, but um, because of the cultural thing, they, more, in most of the cases, they declined, they asked. They, for example, there's, um, there are two uh, shops in the camp that they're renting out wedding dresses, and I thought it would be nice to interview the, the lady, the propri uh, proprietor of one of these, yeah. these shops and, and talk about her experience and also about the parties, about the weddings, who's getting very married in a, a time of war, and mm. I think that would have been would have been a nice voice, a, a different voice, because of course, the only women, uh, sorry, in in Domi's refugee camp in Iraq, the only people I could interview were um, the only women I could interview were either um, doctors or medical staff from doctors without borders or their, their patients. And all the other ladies I wanted to, to draw didn't work, work out, like, uh, unfortunately. There was also this, this old lady, she's, um, she was an old midwife, she was always chain-smoking whenever I saw she, she had a cigarette <laughs> in her mouth. And, and uh, the people from Doctors Without Borders, she told, they told me she, she's not working with us, she, she's doing this old-school way, that kind of traditional way. Wow. It would have been interesting to hear her mm. stories and about the yeah. families she meets and, and she, she would have been great but unfortunately she and I think she would have been okay with me interviewing her but then she, she was old herself yeah. and she had to go to hospital and there was also their beauty parlors in a camp and we walked past the beauty parlor it was full with, with ladies and they were all getting uh, their hair done and, and makeup done for, for a big, big wedding party yeah. in the evening and we went in there and we, we asked I asked the translator if, if I can interview some of them and take photos of them. And they said, no, unfortunately. And, and some of them were kind of interested, they were open to it, but then they said, I, I need to ask my father or my brother uh, okay, or yeah. my husband. Yeah. And then they, they called them and they all said, no. Uh, okay. So it was a pity, but... Um, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I, just, I think... Again, I've touched on this. And I, I, you hear the horrible headlines, or the... The jungle about you know the camping Calais and you know, about all the things that, and all this negative negativity and I, like you said I understand that you know people we, we we have to register people all the, there has to be protocol but then when do you ever hear about a wedding going on in there or uh, yeah. we, we talked you know we we just went for lunch and you talked about the, the how good the food was and, and the, yeah. the fact that there were shops and the, there are no doubt characters like anywhere else in life sadly we we get these dramatizations of what's going on yeah. and people lose sight of the fact that they're just people trying to deal with the set of circumstances they've been given like you or I yeah yeah you know yeah no, that, yeah I think it's important to show the kind of the ambition of the people and, and the industriousness, the people, they, they, you often hear the critic here in the UK, people say, oh, we, we can't let the refugees in there, why, why, do they, why do they want to come to the UK? They already, they could have claimed asylum in Italy or in France or in Germany, and um, why do they want to come to, to the UK? But when I was in, in um, Calais, I met 
several young Syrian men and they were all speaking English very well. And they said, we, we didn't want to stay in Germany. They've been in Germany already, but they told me, we don't want to stay there because we already speak English and we've got relatives in the UK. So if we would stay in, in France or in Germany, we, would, we already wasted three years of, of our, or four years of our lives just waiting for the waters to stop. We had to um, interrupt our studies and, and our careers. And, and if we would stay in Germany, we would need to spend another at least two or three years just to learn the language. But as we already speak English, we want to go to the UK because there we, could, uh, we can continue our studies, we can work, and we can also even live with bankers they've got there and, and, mm-hmm. and our, our relatives. And, and they, they all told me that we don't even want money from the state, we just want to continue our lives and yeah, an opportunity. Get, get on with it. Also, the, the parents, parents told me we want our kids to. Our kids haven't been to school for the last two or three years. We want that they go to school again, that they live in peace, and that they can basically mm-hmm. continue with their lives. Yeah. And this is totally yeah. understandable. That's it. You, 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 you hear this widespread misinformed opinion that we all just want to sponge or want to sponge up the yeah. state or all that the bollocks. Yeah. And, and you think, yeah, it's the same basic human needs that we all have. Of course. You know, to raise a family, to, like you say, to, to continue with a life. Yeah. You know, I think it's easy to forget we're all on this big blue spinning globe in space. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, none of us really know what we're doing here or why we're here, yeah. even if there is a why. So, uh, anyway, I could go on all day about that stuff. But so you got the? Did you get the grant in the end? Yeah, I, I got the grant um, after I came back from course. The the drawings again they got published internationally. They also got shown at the festival in Switzerland again at the Fumetto. And um, yeah, I, I came back and I said. I thought I've got so much material now. I was in Iraq, I was in Greece, and I want to make a book now. So I spent another two months flying, and I got all the dates right this time. Everything was immaculate, <laughs> and um, yeah, luckily I got the grant, and um, the other grant enabled me to to visit Calais, the, the refugee camp or migrant camp. I went there in April last year. Last year, yeah. And I also met uh, Syrians in here in London and in Birmingham as well, and and also in Germany in the hometown in in Simotsam, in the village where oh, I'm wow, from. Oh okay. And there's a family from from Derisor. and um, yeah, it's it's a small village where I'm from. And my, my parents they are uh, basically they they're retired and and they are volunteering. They're helping refugees with. Going to the offices to the administ, helping with with admin stuff and That's wonderful. taking them to the doctors and and they introduced me to the Syrian family. They've got six kids, and yeah, I spent an afternoon with them and they told me about their journey to Germany and um, and about their kind of. It's difficult for the kids. They were great. They were already speaking. They've been in the country for one and a half years and they speak German pretty good already. Mm very well and for the parents it's more difficult and because they also I guess their kids are much much they can adapt to new environments much easier than, than adults and um, they, they told me they all want to go back but they obviously they want to have the war to be over and um, and the children really like it I think they were very happy I also joined them on, on the, their way to, to school and they go to the same school 
that I went when I was there. Oh, wow. So it's quite sweet. Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> I guess what I regret, I'm happy with the book. With, with the book, I think the drawings and, and the interviews are, are I'm, I'm quite happy with it, but what I regret is that it's a little bit on, you only hear the voice of the refugees. It would have been nice to have different voices. For example, I would have loved to interview a truck driver, a British truck driver who had to, to wait for ages just to cross the, mm. the, the channel crossing. And they were, I assume they were very upset because of the refugees and pissed off, I, I guess, because they had to spend yeah. lots, lots of time. And would it be nice to, to meet one of these guys or maybe even join a truck driver in, in France and, and cross the channel with him? Yeah. It would have been great to meet the trucker who already accidentally took refugees with them and, and talk with him about his experience. Mm. And um, I met in Greece, I met volunteers who were helping with the refugees, but I also met people working in the tourism industry, for example, waiters who got laid off because less tourists came on the island or because the, the refugees just camped close okay. to a, a tourist restaurant mm. or, or a bar that was close to the tourists. And, and there were places where kind of didn't shut down, but they had a lot of less visitors, and, yeah. I guess. And they were suffering financially. You, mm. you know, in Greece, you've got a financial crisis and everything. And then you've got a tourism. People on the tourist islands, they depend on the income course they yeah. make in the summer months and then yeah for for many of them the refugee crisis was was a financial big financial burden many of them were really bad racists but I can somehow understand why, why they're pissed off and I would have loved to have shown yeah. this this voice as well oh that of course I mean I think there are there are it's such a multi-layer yeah. issue and, yeah. and of course it affects Local people too, you know. I think this was. I mean, I don't want to get really political on this, but this was a big thing with the whole Brexit thing, for example. Yeah. I, I heard lots of valid opinions of people who wanted to dis- discuss the whole immigration issue, but were immediately shot down as being racist. When actually, you know, you have to listen to all sides of the story, yeah. and then, yeah. and then, you know, the hope is that people can meet in the middle and have a diplomatic conversation, yeah. and yeah. we can all try and find a resolution, but. It just kind of went like that and went completely to the extreme of both sides, and, and in the end, it was a big issue, of course, as well as we're still feeling the fallout now. But yeah, it's that that would be yeah, I'd be interested to, to see that. And I would I would love to show these drawings actually to to people mm. who were so against it. I, I met the guy; he was renting out beach chairs, an old guy, and he. I've been sitting with him, and we're just at the beach, and and you could see the the coast guard, and they just pulled in a big yacht that was sailing ship mm. a sailing boat that was full with refugees and, and he started to say oh we, the navy should sink the boats and and, oh, wow. and he was abusing the refugees very badly and I would have loved to have him in the book but almost he would have been a caricature of, of, of the yeah it would have yeah. been almost a, he was too much of a stereotype yeah yeah, yeah. but then on the other side there was, was another guy also a local Greek a, a younger man who was also doing exactly the same thing. He was also renting out deck chairs. and But he also let refugees come to his part of the beach to have showers there. And he told me at the beginning he let them sleep in his house. And he was just the opposite of this guy. And I could have almost done... It would have been nice to do a reportage piece just about these two guys yeah. in Greece renting out deck chairs. 
shooting it live and sat in the middle. Yeah, and, and he was. Yeah, I would have. But um, yeah, it's difficult to plan these things. You've got to plan it. Oh my god, yeah, of course. And he also told me that uh, many after the Second World War, lots of people from Coast Island and from the Greek islands they migrated to to Australia because mm-hmm. they didn't have any work. They were very poor, mm-hmm. and. So, so they went to Australia and then they made money and then they came back to the island and, and told me that many of them they're very much against the, the refugees coming on the island yeah and um, that is a bit hypocritical yeah. it is, isn't it? and it would have been nice to, to show these kind of these uh, tensions in between the communities but it's, it's I, w- I was sent there to do um, to portray the refugees and document the circumstances. So when when does it come out? Uh, the book, yeah. Um, the German one just got out um, at the beginning of October, and there is a UK publisher. They're interested in it, and my Swiss publisher. They're just talking about the contract and. Fantastic. That would be great to get it published in the UK. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess one of the nicest compliments I ever got for my work is I when the drawings of the Syrians I met on Coast Island after they got published in Harper's Magazine in the US I got an email from um, a librarian I think in Minnesota somewhere in the Midwest and, and he asked me if he can buy poster sized prints of, of the drawings because he would like to exhibit, exhibit them in his library and because he thinks that most of the people who visit his library, they've got absolutely no idea what what the refugee is or, or what kind of um, and what, what what kind of suffering they've got to endure mm. because of, of the, the war and everything. And and you, you you're aware of, of what's going on in America with the Trump and, and he says that basically all migrants are or refugees are terrorists and yeah. and <clears throat> so I think. If, if these drawings can contribute to help raise awareness of the, the people I met mm-hmm. and people who've got uh, suffer from similar um, yeah, experiences that would be great if yeah. this helps I have no doubt they will I, I just think it's such a beautiful visually interesting style the narrative is wonderful and, uh, and, I, and I think it's an experience that not too many people will, will have access to, you know, to going to visit these camps and things. So I think it's oh, really, definitely, yeah. I personally think it's really vitally important work. I, I really do. Um, I've always been a big believer in graphic activism and yeah. creativity's role, especially in these times that we're, we seem to be in at the moment. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see more from our industry. I, I, I agree. I think the problem with this case is destroying get exhibited or got exhibited at a comic book festival they get published in liberal magazines and newspapers mm-hmm. and the people who read these, these, mm. these drawings in, in these media they are already I think they've got open minds and, and yes and they almost don't need to be told these stories because they, they you don't need to convince them that's an interesting point actually and ideally if you want to reach people for example in this country who, who don't want migrants to come you would need to find a different way mm. to present and exhibit this work Yeah, and I think this, this would be a challenge and yeah. I, I don't know how you do that yeah I think that's the important thing that everyone 
we talk about this a lot about the, the bubble view everyone lives in yeah. their bubble and there's not a lot of kind of between these bubbles there's not a lot of uh, cross fertilization or mm-hmm. communication going on I, I think this is what one, one would need to do yeah it's the big challenge yeah. isn't it is to uh, yeah to break down those boundaries and create like we said create middle middle ground for these conversations yeah. to happen yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a big challenge one of the biggest challenges of our time I definitely think, yeah. you know so we'll see but but I certainly think um, you provide some stunning resource material there and let's hope that does that yeah thank you very much no very welcome it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute joy to see yeah it's great so um so the last bit i always ask my guests uh call it the shark in the tank and it's a very on-the-spot question i ask them for a love and a hate or a positive and a negative very loosely themed within creativity it's a wide open question it can be as playful or as serious as you like yeah, i guess i said this already but what i love is is that my work gives me the possibility to go out to meet people mm. that I would normally never have a chance to meet. I, I met people, I met an inmate in a prison, I, I met the refugees, I, I met a prostitute in Stuttgart during the... I got this one assignment from the Guardian so that when the Football World Cup was, was in Germany, they asked me to... I, I told my editor that I'm going home to see my parents over the Christmas holidays. <coughs> And he asked me if I would like to, to meet a prostitute and, and <laughs> interview her about her prospects for, for the um, football world championships. And Stuttgart was also one of the cities where some of the matches would happen. So I met her and, and um, so I meet all kinds of different people. And, and also my work gives me this great excuse to meet people. Mm. And um, what I hate... Let's start with my work. Is that at the moment is, is I'm. I find it even though my work is better than it ever was, I find it harder to make a living now than from the time fifteen years ago when I just graduated. Mm. Now, when I'm doing this, this kind of longer pieces, it's it's very time consuming. I, I need to. I need to go out. I need to travel. I need to conduct interviews. I need to edit the interviews and. Then I need to do the actual drawings, the work and illustrators doing. But they, and I'm also doing the graphic design work, the layouting the books and, and setting the text. And so I'm doing three or four jobs, and at the best of all, I'm only getting paid for one job. Yes. And then what adds to it with doing this work, I, I was lucky because the work, I got money from Doctors Without Borders, I got money from publications and Harper's Magazine and I got um, the Arts Council grant, but then it was really, the last two years have been, or three years have been very hard with making a living because I've got to spend so much time with trying to get the money and with, with uh, doing the application, the Arts, mm-hmm. Arts Council application. So it is pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And um, at the moment, this is not really sustainable because the, yeah, the last years have been hard and yeah. I need to see how I'm going to manage this in the future yeah well it's that classic balance isn't yeah. it when you take yeah. the, the passion projects exactly yeah. famously uh, often come with yeah. a distinct lack of yeah. immediate money you know yeah. <laughs> cash flow yeah, I guess we, we all have this problem <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, yeah I think it's, uh, it's very very common unfortunately yeah well that's been an absolute joy and I'll uh, put the links to the book and everything else in the show notes so people sure. can find Fantastic. all your stuff yeah. yeah thanks for your time Alan. Well, thanks for taking the time to come here and, absolutely and, and grill me <laughs> <laughs>
So what do you think of that? Oh, I think Olivier's raised the bar. I really do. I think all my guests have done something different. They've given me an awesome chance to get to 100 episodes. But I think Olivier's really raised the bar there with some intense stories. And I think I'm just going to have to go and have a lie down. So I hope you enjoyed it like I did. Please do get your thoughts over on Twitter at Arrest Almanics. Likewise on Instagram. Um, drop me an email, hello at bentallen.com if you want to go personal. Please keep listening, please keep sharing, um, support the sponsors, drop us a little review on the iTunes and keep coming back because this show's not going anywhere anytime soon and I love these conversations. Who's been your favourite out of the first 100 episodes? I'd love to hear. Be ruthless, pick one, don't just give me a handful, go for one. Why? Who is it? Nothing wrong with a bit of healthy competition. So I want to hear who your favourite episode's been. Please do let us know on those channels. Uh, thanks again to the sponsors, illustrationweb.com, heartinternet.co.uk, to every single guest, listener, supporter, sharer. Uh, it really does mean the world. And I didn't have any ambitions of going this far with the show when I started it, but here we are. So who knows where it's going to end. Um, let's hope it doesn't turn into one of those TV shows that drags and you just want it gone. If it does, let me know, please. I can take the heat. <laughs> So cheers guys, thanks ever so much, uh, looking forward to kicking on from here, moving forward, we've got some awesome guests coming up, um, not going to get into them right now, uh, but for now I think go back and treat yourself to something from the archive, and cheers again, have a wonderful week, stay creative, thank you very much, cheers guys. <laughs>